What can I says Abu Ja'far al-Mansur, al-Abbas, of the Fatimi dynasty, the Ismaili madhab, Hussein and so on and so forth. That is why we appreciate him so much. Our only crime is that we are He said, I counted them. Ibn Qahdaba says this. A'udhu billahi minash shaytan al-rajim. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. The lady Fatima. is praised by the Almighty Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala within the last divine revelation in numerous occasions. Many verses within the Holy Quran praise the Lady Fatima, the last messenger of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has praised Fatima to Zahra in many occasions, many hadiths and traditions by Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa alihi wa sallam praise Lady Fatima. Al-Batul, Al-Mardiyah, Al-Tahira, Al-Zakiyah, Al-Siddiqah, Ummu Abiha, those were the tokens of honor given to her by the last messenger of God. Lady Fatima is revered as an exemplary figure by all Muslims since the inception of the religion of Islam. She is revered for her piety, righteousness, humility, her prayerful character. Fatima to Zahra has been an example, a source of motivation and inspiration for all Muslims alike, men, women, young, old, regardless of their madhab and their background. Fatima to Zahra holds an extremely important position in the hearts of the Muslim community. However, as we gather in such nights, as we gather to commemorate the martyrdom of Fatima to Zahra, the only child that outlived the Messenger of God, it is not enough for us, brothers and sisters, to sit and to mention the same repetitive stories. Just to say we've had a majlis for Fatima. If we attend the majlis of Fatima to Zahra, we ought to leave as changed individuals. Changed spiritually. Our entire existence must be affected by the majlis of Fatima to Zahra. And more importantly, we must gain knowledge. We must bring change to ourselves, our families, and our communities. We simply would be doing a disservice to Fatima if we came and left and our families did not change. Our communities did not experience any change. And we did not seek perfection within the Ummah of Rasulullah. The legacy of Fatima must inspire every one of us to align ourselves 
with the teachings of Fatima to Zahra to seek knowledge when it comes to everything relevant to Fatima Sayyidatun Nisa the majalis of Fatima must inspire men and women alike to become scholars to seek knowledge to gain piety like the piety of Fatima to have righteousness like the righteousness of Fatima to be generous like the generosity of Fatima to be humane individuals like the humanity that Fatima to Zahra had within her life but, but more importantly brothers and sisters <coughs> we would be doing a disservice to the attendees and I consider this an insult to the intelligence of the attendees if they attend a majlis in the name of Fatima and they leave and they allocate three four five hours of their time to attend a name a majlis in the name of Fatima to Zahra and they would leave without gaining knowledge without being able to be informed of new material surrounding the name of Fatima one thing that we must make sure navigates our majalis becomes a principle within our institutions as respecting the time of the attendees respecting their intelligence making sure that their minds are stimulated every time they attend the majlis and that is why i have chosen to speak of this topic tonight a topic that i believe has been ignored from the pulpit it's been ignored from the member a part a crucial part an important part of the history of islam and specifically shi'i islam unfortunately brothers and sisters <coughs> we <coughs> from the member examine history very well from the inception of islam until the martyrdom of al-imam al-hussein so we are fully aware of what had happened in the time of rasulullah after rasulullah up until the martyrdom of imam al-hussein and sometimes until the imam ali ibn al-hussein zain al-abideen But when it comes to examining the life and the biography of the Ma'sumin after Imam Ali ibn al-Hussein, Zain al-Abideen, we examine them in an extremely mediocre manner. What do I mean? We say, for example, Imam al-Baqir was born in this specific year in the city of Medina. This was his father, his mother, and this is how he died and this is how he was buried. And we, we hear the same exact biography of Imam Al-Baqir, Imam Al-Sadiq, Imam Al-Hadi, Imam Al-Askari, Imam Al-Jawad every single year. The only way we would end up appreciating the biography of the Ma'sumin and their history is when we examine the political situation in which they lived. 
So it's not enough for me to know which year he was born and in which year he passed away or he was a martyr. It is important for me to know who were the khulafa of his time. It is important for us to know how far Islam had stretched during the imam of the specific imam. What were the political challenges that the followers of Ahlul Bayt were facing? What were the political challenges that the imam of Ahlul Bayt was facing? What were the social issues and the time of that specific ma'soom? Who were the main scholars outside the madhab of Ahlul Bayt during the lifespan of that specific ma'soom? When we examine the life and the biography of that ma'soom in this specific manner, and the legacy of that specific ma'soom and that specific imam, believe me, we will not appreciate them any less than Imam al Hussein. Today, we the followers of Ahl al-Bayt appreciate Imam al Hussein. We love Imam al Hussein because we understand the political scenario that Imam al Hussein faced, the proclaimed Khalifa at the time of Imam al Hussein. The injustice taking place at the time of Imam al Hussein, the challenges that the Shia faced at the time of Imam al Hussein, and so on and so forth. That is why we appreciate him so much. Similarly, that is how we've examined Amir al Mu'mineen. But when it comes to Imam al Jawad, when it comes to Imam al Hadi, when it comes to Imam al Askari, we lack to examine them in the same manner of details. And that is why I have chosen to examine this topic, the Fatimite dynasty, the Fatimi government. A government established in the name of Fatima to Zahra. A government that occupies 260 years from the Islamic history. A government that stretched from Syria to Sudan that governed the entire Red Sea and the North Atlantic Ocean, that governed 16 countries, Egypt, Libya, Sudan, Spain, parts of Italy, Saudi Arabia, were all governed by the Fatimi Khalifa. The Khilafah which began in the year 300 after the migration of Rasulullah the third century Islam and it lasted until the year 562 after the Hijrah <clears throat> and unfortunately even though this was a Shi'i government this was a Shi'i dynasty and the name of Fatima to Zahra it's been ignored by the Shi'i historians it's been ignored by the Shi'i member it's been ignored by the speakers and the scholars who take the pulpit. But it's been discussed heavily by those outside the madhab of Ahlul Bayt. And you know, historians outside the madhab of Ahlul Bayt, 
discussing any notion that has to do with the Shia and the followers of Ahlul Bayt. To say the least, they would narrate it in an extremely unfair manner. To a point that today the books of history try to give an image to Bani Umayyah, to Bani Al-Abbas, who were tyrants, bloodthirsty, malicious, vicious tyrants. Uh, a picture of peace, sometimes praising them, sometimes covering their ill behavior and reflecting extremely unfair story when it comes to the Fatimite dynasty. Let, let, let me say this. By speaking about the Khilaf al-Fatimiyyah or the Fatimite Caliphate, I am in no shape or form suggesting that I am a fan or I support everything or we support everything that they've done or they're flawless or they're infallible. They made no mistakes. No, that's not the case. I've chosen to speak of this topic for the following reasons. Number one, it's 260 years from Islamic history that we're unaware of. Number two, it's a governance established in the name of Fatima to Zahra. And we as the followers of Fatima must be able to gain knowledge and perspective when it comes to everything relating to Fatima to Zahra. Number three, Historians and those who speak of the Fatimi Khilafah have been extremely unfair to them. And we are here to give a different perspective. Try to give an unbiased perspective. That is why we will examine it in the following manner. Number one, a quick glance at the caliphates prior to the Fatimi Khilafah. Number two, who was Ismail? And why was the main madhab, the official madhab of the Fatimi dynasty, the Ismaili madhab? Number three, the establishment of Cairo, the University of Al-Azhar, the seminary of Al-Azhar and Al-Azhar Mosque. Number four, the unwitnessed Amount of freedom, pluralism, freedom of speech and practice given in the time of the Fatimi dynasty. And last but not least, the method placed by the Fatimis to propagate the madhab of Ahlul Bayt. After your loud salawat, ala Muhammadin wa ali Muhammad. The Muslim historians have divided the caliphates into four specific periods. The first, Al-Khilaf al-Rashidah, which began with Abu Bakr, ended with Imam al-Hasan. Some people may not count Imam al-Hasan. 
end with Amir al-Mu'mineen, al-Imam Ali. And some people may include Imam Hassan, and others have even included Muawiyah. Then comes the second period. Al-Khilaf al-Umawiyah, the Umayyad dynasty, that began with Muawiyah. The third was Bani al-Abbas. Bani al-Abbas were founded on two main principles. First of all, they took their name and their title after Rasulullah's youngest uncle al-Abbas. The first principle was the principle of al-mawali wal-mamalik. They differentiated between the Arabs and the non-Arabs. Why? Because Islam kept expanding. A lot of new countries, a lot of new lands, a lot of new languages, a lot of new nationalities had entered the Islamic empire. And there was one Khalifa. When Bani al-Abbas came, they divided them into two classes. There were the elite Muslims, the Arab Muslims, the Muslims who lived in Hijaz, the Muslims who lived in the Arabian Peninsula, and then the Mamalik, those who entered by war, those who entered by force, those who their lands were invaded, and then they had to enter the religion of Islam. Specifically in the time of Bani Umayyah. So they divided them into two categories, two classes. And of course, they gave the utmost respect to the Arabs. And they mistreated the non-Arabs. And number two, they had their main slogan, Al-Ridha min Ali Muhammad. Meaning, that we're back to give the rights of Al-Muhammad back to them. We are here to honor Al-Muhammad. Al-Muhammad saw injustice in the time of Bani Umayyah. The rights were taken away from them. And we are here to honor them, to please them, to seek their rida, their satisfaction, and to choose a Khalifa from the Ahl al-Bayt. And they named themselves after the uncle of Rasulullah, Abbas. However, read the history of Ibn al-Athir, seven volumes, history of Ibn al-Athir, Tariq al-Mas'udi, those famous historians. They tell you that the zulm of Bani Abbas, the injustice of Bani al-Abbas, the intolerance of Bani al-Abbas towards the followers of Ahl al-Bayt and the imams of Ahl al-Bayt exceeded Bani Umayyah by thousands of folds. They were the most bloodthirsty, vicious enemies of the Imams of Ahl al-Bayt and the followers of Ahl al-Bayt. History, Ibn Athir, he says Abu Ja'far al-Mansur al-Abbasi gave a direct order that if you find any Sayyid, Anyone who, descend, who is a descendant 
of Amir al-Mu'mineen, Imam Ali, Fatima. Then you take them. Number one, you imprison them. And you do not let them to see the daylight. Number two, sometimes they would strip them away from their clothes and parade them within the cities to humiliate them. The children of Rasulullah. It was known that the Arabs, they would lash the prisoners, but they would never hit them in the face because that's a form of dishonoring them. Abu Ja'far al-Mansur would order them to lash them on their face 150 times and then prayed them in the city. Al-Mahdi al-Abbasi killed 5,000 of the progeny of Ahl al-Bayt. 5,000 Sayyids. Al-Saffah al-Abbasi killed 500,000 followers of Ahl al-Bayt. Those are huge numbers. Harun, Harun, who's known as Harun al-Rashid, Harun al-Abbasi, had a minister by the name of Ibn Qahtaba. One time he called Ibn Qahtaba as he was drunk in the middle of the night. They knocked at the door of Ibn Qahtaba. They said, Ajib al-Amir. So he went, he stood in front of Harun. He said to him, yes, ya Amir al-Mu'mineen, what can I do? He says, Ibn Qahtaba, what do you have to offer for us? What do you have to offer to the Khalifa? So he says to him, I would offer anything you ask. I, I offer myself. I offer my wealth. He says, I don't need yourself because I have many soldiers, many people who are willing to sacrifice themselves to me. And I don't need your wealth. I am wealthier than you. Go home. As soon as he reached home, Harun said, send him again. Bring him again. They went and they brought Ibn Qahtaba. Ibn Qahtaba, what do you have to offer to us? He says, I can offer the woman in my home to the Khalifa. He says to him, I don't need any woman from your household. I have many. Go home. As soon as he reached home, the Khalifa again sends him. Ajib al-Amir, he comes back. He says, Ibn Qahtaba, what do you have to offer to the Khalifa? It seems you're slow, you're not understanding what I'm asking from you. So he says, Ya Khalifa, I offer you my Akhirah. I offer you my religion. I sell you my Akhirah. He says to him, I will purchase it from you. Let's make a deal. He says to him, can I go home now? He says, no. We've just made a deal. You're going, go, you're going to go home? No, of course not. You go with this person to a specific prison. So he went with him to the prison. They opened a room full of young boys under the age 15. He said, I counted them. Ibn Qahtaba says this story. He says, I counted them. They were 20. He said to me, what should I do with them? 
So you take the sword and behead every one of them. He says, but why? What is their crime? He says, it's none of your business. You've already sold your akhirah. What difference does it make to you? He said, I drew the sword and I beheaded every one of them. I wanted to leave. He took me to another room. Middle-aged men in their 30s and 40s and 50s. I counted them. There were 20 of them. I beheaded every single one of them. I wanted to leave. He told me there is one more room. I opened them. They were elderly men, white beards. In their 60s and 70s and 80s. He says, but they're already going to die. He says, no. You've made a deal with the Khalifa. He said, I beheaded every one of them. He said, the last person when I drew the sword in his face, he said to me, hold on, Ibn Qahtaba. Do you know who we are? And why you're killing us? He says, no. I am executing the command of the Khalifa. He says, what will you answer our grandfather Rasulullah on the day of judgment? Our only crime is that we are Sadat. And we are the children of Rasulullah. He says, my hand started shaking. I beheaded him. And I went back home. And Ibn Qahtaba, Ibn Qahtaba in his history, it's written that he suffered from an emotional breakdown after that. But this was Bani al-Abbas. The zulm of Bani al-Abbas exceeded its limits so much that people were looking to escape from their injustice. And that's why they came towards the Fatimi Khilafah. The Fatimi Khilafah began in the north, northern African continent. And they had a capital city by the name of Al-Mahdiyya. Years within their Khilafah, they made their way towards Egypt. Once they took control of Egypt, Jawhar al-Saqalli, the head of the armed forces, began to build a city by the name of Al-Qahira, Cairo. Today, Qahira. And the millions of people who visit Qahira, Cairo, are indebted to the Fatimi dynasty. He built the city. And he built the city on this principle of building a university, a seminary, that will propagate the teachings of Islam, the Quran, and Ahl al-Bayt. And they named it Al-Azhar. Al-Jami' Al-Azhar and the seminary of Al-Azhar. And I want to pause here for a moment. After they built the Azhar and they built Qahira, of course the Khalifa, the Fatimi Khalifa migrated at the time Abdullah al-Mahdi al-Fatimi, he migrated and they chose their capital city to be Cairo from Egypt. And they began to govern the 16 countries that they had control over from Egypt, from Cairo. Now I'm not trying to tell you that they were flawless once again. They were ma'sumin, but compare to the ugly, vicious, and malicious history of Bani Umayyah and Bani al-Abbas, of course they were angels. But today, unfortunately, like I said, they make it seem the exact opposite. That the zalim, the unjust, the intolerant, 
or the Fatimis and the time of Bani al-Abbas was a time of peace and tranquility and tolerance and anyhow Al-Azhar was based Al-Azhar Seminary University was based on the following principles listen to this this is in the year this is in the second and third year this is third fourth and fifth century Islam look at our seminaries today our Islamic institutions today our masajid today and ask yourself a question that have we been able to keep the same principles or have we drifted away from the spirit of Ahlul Bayt and Islam number one they base the foundation of Al-Azhar on tolerance tolerance of opinion tolerance of perspective and they created a chair for every single school of thought within Al-Azhar the Shafi'is, the Malikis, the, Hanabi, the Hanafis, the Hanbalis, the Shia, the Sufis every single school within Islam had a chair within Al-Azhar and they chose to bring the biggest of their scholars and muftis and place them in Qahira, in Egypt and, tell, and told them you are more than welcome to teach freely in Al-Azhar propagate, teach nobody will harm you, nobody will stop you from propagating and teaching your madhab now the madhab of Ahl al-Bayt was forbidden nobody could teach the madhab of Ahl al-Bayt until then but then they brought scholars to teach the madhab of Ahl al-Bayt as well what's interesting is once you bring the opinion of others and you also bring the opinion of Ahl al-Bayt and you put it next to it the opinion of Ahl al-Bayt shines like a diamond but if you only bring the opinion of Ahl al-Bayt and we're unaware of the opinion of others it doesn't seem as significant and this was an extremely smart move and method implied by the Fatimi scholar by the Fatimi Khalifa in fact, this was a principle of Imam Sadiq. One of the students of Imam Sadiq comes to him. He says to him, Yabna Rasulullah, I go to Hajj and people look at me as a mufti, as a scholar. People respect me. So they come to me. I know they do not belong to the Shi'i school. I know they, do, they are not Shia. I know they are outside our madhab. So I give them the fatwa that they follow according to their own madhab and some people come and ask me and I know they're Shia so I give them your opinion and some people come to me and I don't know them so I give them both perspectives is what I'm doing right? am I on the right track? or is what I'm doing a mistake? Imam al-Sadiq tells him Ahsant if'al hakadha this is what we this is the methodology that we want you to use today brothers and sisters unfortunately sometimes within our seminary sometimes among scholars within our community from the member we cannot tolerate one another we cannot tolerate new perspectives new opinions there is some sort of 
intolerance, almost terrorizing the opinion of others, putting them down, belittling them. Of course, we don't agree. We don't have to agree. But the most important thing is being able to put the perspective of others next to, next to our perspective. And allow them to preach and practice freely. That's number one. Number two, Al-Azhar was founded based on freedom and religious practice. So Al-Azhar and Jam' Al-Azhar had lectures every single day. Every, go read the history of Al-Azhar. Every Sunday and Tuesday, a Sunni Imam would be the one that would deliver the lectures at Al-Azhar. Even though the Khalifa was Shia. Even though the city was founded by the Shia. But they would allocate the lecture to be given by a Sunni Imam. More importantly. And the 16 countries that Fatimis ruled, Salat al-Taraweeh was never forbidden. Let people pray. They want to pray Taraweeh, let them pray Taraweeh. Now, let us compare history for a moment. Bani al-Abbas, just because you're a Sayyid, they behead you. Just because you're a Sayyid, Bani Umayyah, amputates the limbs, the head, the hands, the legs, and the body parts of those who are the progeny of Rasulullah. It's because the principles are different, brothers and sisters. It's because those guys, they took their teachings and principles from Imam Ali, from Imam Hassan, Imam Hussein, Imam Ali ibn al-Hussein, Imam Ja'far al-Sadiq. How can they indulge in injustice in that type of manner? By killing, burning, amputating the limbs of the enemies or those who disagree with them? Never. So they gave them the freedom to practice. Even pray Salat al-Taraweeh. Now a question arises, why was it that the madhab of the Fatimis was the Ismaili madhab? Who was Ismail? Ismail ibn Ja'far al-Mubarak. Ismail, the son of Imam al-Sadiq, his nickname was al-Mubarak. He died when he was 34 or 35 years old, the eldest son to Imam al-Sadiq. The beloved son of Imam al-Sadiq. Imam al-Sadiq loved him, respected him. And he was the representative of Imam al-Sadiq. Allah chose to take, take, take him in the life, during the life of Imam al-Sadiq. History tells us that a lot of people surrounded Ismail. He had companions. He had people that would look up to him, surround him. And some of them truly loved him because they saw the unlimited love that Imam al-Sadiq had for Ismail. And when, Imam, when Ismail died, Imam al-Sadiq was extremely saddened. He cried for him. But Imam al-Sadiq, if you read history, stopped his janazah many times during his burial. 
And he called his companions, his disciples, those who loved him, his friends, one by one sometimes telling him, Fulan, come and see the face of Ismail. Ismail has died. People interpreted that at that time, that look how sad Imam al-Sadiq is. It's as if he hasn't even believed the fact that his son Ismail has died. But Imam al-Sadiq had a different plan. He wants to tell them Ismail is dead. He's gone. We're about to bury him. As soon as he buried him, some people said Ismail is the hidden Imam and he will return. He's the Qa'im. Ismail had three sons. Ahmed, Muhammad and Ali. Muhammad was a politically active individual and he was known as Muhammad al-Maktoum the secretive Muhammad or in secret he began to uh, establish a, a political cult and it was known as the Ismaili political movement now if you read within the history of Shiism you find another cult known as the Kaysanis. Who were the Kaysanis? The Kaysanis were the ones that were politically motivated by Muhammad ibn al-Hanafiyya. The brother of Imam al-Hussein, the brother of Imam al-Hassan. The brother of Imam al-Hussein who outlived him, Muhammad ibn al-Hanafiyya. After the martyrdom of Imam al-Hussein, Muhammad ibn al-Hanafiyya became politically active. And he started a political movement. He never called for his imama. He never claimed to be an imam. Similarly, Ismail never claimed to be an imam. It was a political movement endorsed by Muhammad al-Maktoum, the son of Ismail, that later on developed into a madhab. So... Was it their religious madhab, the Fatimis' religious madhab or political madhab? That's another discussion. The Fatimis, when they began their governance and then when they established the Khilafah from Qahira, what was very interesting about them is they didn't end up choosing the Shia. If you're a Shia, if you're an Ismaili, then we'll put you in the governing body. We'll make you a governor. We'll make you a minister. We'll give you authority. No. They looked for people with capabilities. That is why they had judges who were Sunni. They had judges and ministers and governors who were outside the madhab of Ahlul Bayt. Listen to this. They had ministers who were Christian. For a while, one of their most famous defense ministers was Christian. They had Jewish ministers. One of their most famous treasurers was a Jewish man. So they looked for people's capabilities. A man that can get the job done. Let's ask ourselves for a moment. Let's not go far away within our own communities. Do we look for people with capabilities? Or we look for family members, friends, 
people who speak the same language, have the same nationality, eat the same food, that agree with me on everything so I don't have to go through the trouble of, of explaining things to them and disagreeing with them. We don't look for people with cap the best of capabilities. We look for friends. That's within our communities. And this is why we have been stuck in the same place for so many years. And I tell you, brothers, the younger brothers, this is not the teachings of Islam and the Quran and Ahlul Bayt. Do not base your communities on nationalism, on a race, on a language, on gender. Make sure you find the right man for the job, the right individual for the job, and you trust them, and you allow them to take the leadership. This is in our own communities. This is third century Islam, a government based on capabilities. Today, today, after 1,400 years from the inception of Islam, look at a country like Iraq. Is it a country based on capabilities of individuals? No. One party comes and rules. And you have to be part of that party, you have to have an agreement, you have to have completely aligned. Similarly, when it comes to any other Muslim country, mashallah, it gets worse, it doesn't get better. Today, look at the cradle of Islam, the kingdom of Saudi Arabia. One man comes to power, he imprisons everyone, including his own family members. Yalla. Give up your assets, give up your money. It's like people are sheeps. They treat them like slaves. There is no respect for human life. And how is it that minds will flourish in such an environment? How is it that people would be then able to express themselves freely? If you say a word, and it's seen as a threat or a disagreement, then you never see the light of the day. This is Islam. We cannot change, unfortunately, the Middle East. And we cannot change the mindset. And we cannot change the political system. Unless, you know, a miracle happens. But you can change your own community. Your own life, your own family. Do not base your decisions on anything besides what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has promoted in the Quran. Don't say she's a woman, she can't handle this. He's young, he can't do it. They're outside our culture, they won't know. Ya ayyuhannas, inna khalaqnakum min dhakarin wa untha wa ja'alnakum shu'uban wa qaba'ila lita'arafu inna akramakum indallah Finally, the Fatimi government placed a specific system to propagate the madhab of Ahl al-Bayt. Prior to that, Bani Umayyah, prior to that, Bani al-Abbas, of course, you cannot even 
mention Ahl al-Bayt or propagate the teachings of Ahl al-Bayt. Now when it comes to al-Dawla al-Fatimiyah, the Fatimite Caliphate, now they needed to propagate and spread the teachings of Ahl al-Bayt. But in what methodology? By force? No. They chose scholars that spoke every language that they can get a, a hold of. And they invited them on their own expense with honor and respect to come to Al-Azhar, to study, to teach, to learn. And then they would send them to propagate the teachings of Ahl al-Bayt. Like I said, this is third, fourth and fifth century Islam today. Many of us have migrated to the West, to Europe, to America, to Australia. But yet we have not adapted this methodology of propagation. We don't have a plan that's two people, a man and a woman, four people, six people, one person from every community sent to the seminary with a specific goal, with a specific agenda gain Islamic knowledge and return to us. Brothers and sisters, it is important that the person propagating and teaching Islam knows the culture of the land that he propagates to. You cannot import. If importing scholars was the thing to do, then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala would have chose all prophets to have one nationality and speak one language and he would have sent them to all over the world. No. He chose 124,000 prophets that spoke different languages, had different cultures, had different backgrounds, different skin colors, different nationalities. Why? Because they have to be part of that community. Understand the challenges of that specific community. Not come to me from a different part of the world. Sit on the member. It's interesting. I was speaking somewhere where there, there was another gentleman speaking with me. Prior to me. And he happened to speak about the Iraqi elections every day. And the Iraqi parties and the Iraqi politics every single day from the member. Until the 10th day. So the 10th day I asked him, do you know that the elections in this country are going to happen very soon? In less than a month? Not once you mentioned the elections in this country where people live, people study, people pay taxes, people go to school, and they'll probably end up dying and be buried in this country. You never mention the elections here. You keep talking about the elections in a different country to them for 10 days. That's called a waste of time. That's called a waste of our resources. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, بَعَثَ فِيهِمْ رَسُولًا مِنْهُمْ Amongst them. Today, in the West, we have many Imams. Thousands, but half of them, they don't speak the English language. So half of them are useless, basically, or their, their ability is very limited. And some of them speak English, but we don't understand it. And the other half, they speak English, we understand, but their mindset, 
Physically they live here, but mentally they live elsewhere. Mentally they live back home. And until when we're going to continue with this method? You have to take things in your own hand. Choose the brightest, the most pious, the most capable of your youth and turn them into scholars. You will benefit. Your children will benefit. The future of Islam will benefit. Don't say that he's, you know, very bright. Let him become a physician. You know what happens when the bright ones don't go to the Hawza? The level of knowledge that you then will gain and your children will then gain will also be very mediocre. This was the methodology that the Fatimis used and that is why the madhab of Ahl al-Bayt was prosperous at that time. And they were the ones that initiated the majalis that you see today. In Egypt until today if you go you see that they give food in the streets, they have celebrations, they have nasheeds. This was all part of the culture and the rituals that the Fatimis began. And of course it was a, a, an event that brought harmony to people. When you break bread with people outside your school of thought, outside your madhab, in a form of respect, it creates a bond. It brings people closer. Unfortunately, brothers, I say this with a broken heart, with a heart full of pain that sometimes our majalis are a mean for people to run away from us, get scared of us, lose the respect for us and the madhab of Ahl al-Bayt and the Imams of Ahl al-Bayt. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala draws a principle for us within the Holy Quran. Propagate for the sake of Allah, not in the way that you like, not in the way that you desire. Propagate Udu ila sabili rabbika bil hikmah wisdom wal mawaidatil hasana with attractive mannerism and propagation. Be respectful, be kind, be courteous. If a majlis is propagating the Quran and not taking into consideration the principles of the Quran, that's not a majlis that's going to be aligned with the teachings of the Quran. If a majlis is propagating the teachings of Ahl al-Bayt but going against the methodology of Ahl al-Bayt, that's not a majlis aligned with the teachings of Ahl al-Bayt. And the name of Fatima, and the mention of Fatima, believe me brothers and sisters, rejuvenates the hearts of all Muslims alike. Because she's a figure loved and revered by all Muslims. Wassalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah.